Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Icons, have you heard of Cozy Furniture? Now, if you haven't, Cozy's a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture made for modern living. Cozy strives to provide really good furniture and a great furniture shopping experience with super elegant, high-quality products, fast delivery, and easy assembly. They have couches that are customizable, even customizable over time. So in the future years, you can add modules to them. I mean, they also offer washable rugs, wall shelving, credenzas, TV stands, accessories, coffee tables, sofas. Cozy has so much, and it's all thoughtfully designed furniture made Again, for modern living, it's a really great experience when you're shopping at Cozy. They really have great customer service. I think it's fantastic. And again, I love the couches they offer, but they have so much. And uh, that's what I love most is that you can customize those couches over time. Plus, all this stuff is elegant, affordable. Uh, Cozy offers things uh, that are great value to customers with direct-to-consumer business structure. Uh, So that's why they're able to get it to you at those affordable prices. So transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Again, C-E-O-Z-E-Y.com. Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture now. This is Mo Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Fermentation expert Sandor Katz has earned the nickname Sandor Kraut, given his passion for sauerkraut. Today, Sandor joins us to demystify the science behind one of the world's oldest culinary techniques. 
fermentation does not require a degree in microbiology or a microscope or the ability to absolutely control the environment. It's been done by people with the simplest of equipment for literally millennia. Also coming up, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt shares his favorite ways to transform leftover mashed potatoes, and we learn to make homemade Japanese-style curry. But first, it's my interview with cookbook author Christina Cho. Her book, Mooncakes and Milk Bread, brings Chinese baking to the home cook. Christina, welcome to Milk Street. Hi, so excited to be here. Pleasure having you. Uh, so the oven is not something that was typical in a, in a Chinese household until fairly recently, right? I mean, the, the idea of baking is not something that was done at home that much, right? You're correct. My my grandma, even to this day, I don't think has ever turned on her oven. Uh, so a lot of the things you find at Chinese bakeries, I think, are just more special because a lot of people reserve them for actual bakers that had full-size ovens to make. But home baking doesn't quite have as strong of a culture. So explain to me or tell us the story of growing up, like who was doing the cooking and in particular, who was doing the baking? I mean, to give you the the impetus to do this book. Yeah. So I, I grew up in a Chinese restaurant family. My my grandparents immigrated to the United States in the late 60s. Uh, they brought all their kids, and including my mom. So growing up, my grandparents were cooking all the time. They were cooking for work. In a home setting, my grandma was probably cooking a little bit more than my grandpa. Um, and then in my immediate family, my mom was the main cook in the family and still is. Uh, we are mostly savory cooks. So when I was in middle school, I kind of took it upon myself to learn how to bake for the first time. And it was how I got independence in the kitchen. Because if I was making dumplings or something, I would have so many people around me telling me what they think I should be doing. But <laughs> if I was making a cheesecake, like it was just silence because no one else knew <laughs> how to how to make anything like that. Smart. Um, yeah. But while I was writing the book... Um, I think it allowed me to reflect a lot about my own family. Like, I was surprised that I had a few of my grandma's recipes in here, like her steamed cupcakes. I look at a lot of cookbooks. I, I don't remember seeing a book that talked about Chinese baking. And, and I just go like, why not? I mean, this is such a – it's so fascinating. These are things I would think about buying in a bakery but not making at home. And now I look at your book, I'm, I want to make them at home. Um, was this, is this the first book that really – really covers this this ground? Yeah, it's it's the first, I would say, modern book written in English that comprehensively covers all these wonderful things that you'll find in a Chinese bakery and, and, and even more, like you'll find like savory breakfast things. So it starts to dabble into like a little bit of like that dim sum culture. But yeah, this is the first book, which even still like shocks me today that like even in 2021 that I had the opportunity to yeah. write a book on this topic and be the first one. Um, but I, I think it just maybe speaks to like a little bit of like a shift in like the cookbook landscape and that we're, as readers, we're just sort of interested in learning about these different facets of other cultures. Yeah, cookbooks are not afraid. You know, I would say until about five or six years ago, cookbook publishers in particular were afraid to present recipes in their original. Mm -hmm. and, now, and now you see ingredients, you see techniques, and you see combinations of of flavors that are pretty authentic, you know, to the to the original, and I think that's right. I think it's great. Uh, so, what are mooncakes? 
Mooncakes are a very traditional Chinese pastry that's made typically for mid-autumn festival, although you can make them all year if you want to. And the style that I grew up with is a Cantine-style mooncake, but all the different styles are essentially the same two components. You have a crust on the exterior, um, and then the interior is a filling that could be like red bean paste, black sesame paste, white lotus paste with a salted egg yolk in there, um, a mixture of like dates and nuts and honey, something sweet. Um, but it kind of just changes depending on where you are in China or different parts of Asia. Uh, mooncakes come in so many different shapes and styles. Salted egg yolks. How do you, you say you, 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 you do it yourself. How do you make salted egg yolks? So I make salted egg yolks in the shortcut version where I take like a shallow bowl or some type of container and you fill it up with salt, make some divots and then place the egg yolks in there and then cover them up with salt. And this is a shortcut because the salt has like such direct access to the egg yolks that it quickly cures them. Uh, and then after like a few days, like I would keep them in for at least three days. Um, I'll rinse the salt away and they're still, they still have a little bit of like kind of jamminess to them and then I'll just put them in, in the oven at a low heat to dry them out and then you can store them in the fridge for a while. And what do you, why do you salt egg yolks? You use them how in the baking? Salted egg yolks have a really wonderful, I think, texture. They're like a little creamy and a little crumbly. Um, Flavor-wise, it has, of course, like the salty bite and then also like it lends richness. Right. Um, so it naturally, I think, fits its way into like a lot of different desserts. Like I have these salted egg yolk donuts using the milk bread. And that's one of my favorite mm. recipes in the book. Um, hot dog flour buns. Yeah. So you, you obviously- My favorite topic. Love yeah, talking I, about I know, yeah, but it, it shows you have a sense of humor uh, and also like to be creative. <laughs> so you want to just explain what it is? Yes. So hot dog flour buns are just like regular classic hot dog stuff that you would get for barbecues in the summertime. Um, and they are wrapped in milk bread dough. And then you cut the hot dog into six pieces typically. And then you arrange those dough wrapped hot dogs in a flower shape. So like <laughs> a piece in the middle and then you have five petals around it. And then you let it proof and bake them. And you have these like really kind of like whimsical flower shaped buns that kids love, adults love them, everybody loves them. Okay, my my kids are going to be eating this soon. Um, <laughs> you talk you talk about steaming cupcakes. You want to talk about that? Yes. Yeah, so I have my grandma's steamed cupcakes in there. They're called Fa Go, and my grandma typically makes them for Lunar New Year every year. A lot of the food that you make for like traditional Chinese holidays are symbolic, which I find poetic. And um, when you steam them. The I guess the legend or like the tradition about it is that the taller the cupcakes bloom in your steamer, the more good fortune and prosperity you're going to have throughout the year, uh, which made it a little nerve wracking when I was testing I was that recipe because my yeah. first couple batches like weren't that awesome. But then I finally got it and I was like, OK, now I have good luck forever. <laughs> um, some of the recipes towards the back of the book, like mango mousse cake, which look fabulous, by the way. Are some of the recipes things that are just your inventions or these these coming from other traditions or what? I would say that the book is maybe 50-50 classic 
Chinese bakery items or at least like flavor combinations like the mango mousse cake. Um, and then the other 50 percent are more like my unique creations, but using a lot of the same principles, of course, that I've witnessed or learned from Chinese bakers. So I felt like I needed to include things like pineapple buns, egg tarts, because you can't have a Chinese baking book without those things in there. But then also keeping true to me and the way that I work, I I love to be creative and come up with unique flavor combinations and recipes. And I think that's also very similar to how Chinese bakeries are run. They're really whimsical. And I think every Chinese bakery is a little different depending on where they are. Um, and you, you never know what you're going to find. Christine, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for being on Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. That was my interview with Christina Cho. Her latest book is Mooncakes and Milk Bread, Sweet and Savory Recipes Inspired by Chinese Bakeries. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Molt and I will be answering your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, and she also stars in Sarah's weeknight meals on public television. Chris, you know, sometimes I get in a rut and I get really bored with my own cooking. Do you ever get bored with yours? Well, you mean, do I get bored cooking or do I get bored because I can't come up with something interesting? The latter. Sure. But then there's always the glass of wine. And that always (laughs) makes it so much better. Um, I use basic things like maybe Japanese noodles or Italian noodles or I use rice or I use beans. I just put things on it that have tons of flavor. I don't think about dinner as dinner. I eat almost everything in a bowl, a fairly small bowl because I've been eating in the office all day, which I'm stuffed by five. So I'll have a small bowl of udon noodles with a little simple sauce on it and maybe little scallions or something left over from the fridge. So I'm very happy with something simple as long as there's a strong flavor there. So I, I think the key for me is finding the, you know, it's the urfa pepper or the Turkish chili pepper or the soy sauce or the lime juice or whatever it is, the ginger. That's the thing that saves you from boredom. Okay, fair enough. That wouldn't fly in my household. What, just udon noodles with a little... No, I don't think so. And two glasses of wine. (laughs) You're cooking for an audience. Yeah, I know. Your husband. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Anyway, I'm cooking for my own personal consumption. Okay, well, that's easy. I answered your question. You did. All right, let's take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Johanna. Hi, Johanna. Where are you calling from? Just outside of Austin in Pflugerville, Texas. Oh, how can we help you? I am actually a nutrition teacher, and we did a lab in class where we made brownies, and um, none of our tops were shiny. So I was wondering, how do you get shiny tops on your brownie? Oh, that's that's a funny question. But how did the brownies taste? They tasted good. What kind of chocolate did you use? Just cocoa powder. Okay. Well, apparently, King Arthur flour... Are Mm -hmm. you familiar with their website? Yes, I am. They did a whole test about this to figure out how you, you know, get that shiny top and what indeed creates it. And after numerous tests, they came up with the conclusion that if you used chocolate chips in the recipe, in addition to the cocoa, you ended Uh up with a nice shiny top. Now, the explanation... 
not quite so clear. It has something to do with the egg and the sugar sort of forming a bit of a meringue on top. But it's who knows what else is in chocolate chips that they would create this situation. I don't know. But that seemed to be the one thing, adding a couple of cups of chocolate chips at the end of the recipe. Well, so we made 70 of these with all the students. Yeah, so we did quite a bit of testing on this recipe. And there were two students who achieved a shiny top. So I was hoping the answer would be more of a procedural type of thing. So do you think that, like, whipping the egg and the sugar together even more would help us out a little? Yes, I do. Is that what they did? They kind of did it more independently. I didn't see how much stirring they did versus the other groups, but I saw... You know, their batter looked the same as it was going in. And then when I saw their final product, when it came out, it was shiny. Here's my take. I heard the same thing about chocolate chips. It doesn't make any sense to me unless, and Sarah may be right about this, there's some other stabilizer or other ingredient in chocolate chips because it's not just cocoa and sugar, Mm -hmm. which is causing that to happen. The other way of looking at it, you know, Stella Parks, the well-known baker, would say, You need the sugar to rise to the top of the brownie where it's going to become glossy when baked. And the way to do that is whip the eggs in a way where you almost create a little bit of a meringue. So the top, Mm -hmm. that sugary meringue, gets glossy when baked. That that makes sense to me. So I would say from a procedural point of view, if you whip the eggs with the sugar more, you probably are going to get a shinier top. At least intellectually, that makes sense to me. But I would ask the people in your class who had the shiny tops whether they did that. The only other thing I can say is a brownie with more sugar in it is more likely to have a glossy top than a brownie with less sugar in it. Because, you're, ah. right, I mean, I think when it really comes down to it is, and that's maybe why the chocolate chips work, is you're adding more sugar to the brownie. Yeah. I think it's about sugar content, and that would be my quick and easy answer. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was yeah. an honor to talk to you. That guys. was a great question, by the way. Thank yes. you. Yes. Thank you. Take care. You too. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? This is Jeremy Bailey from Saratoga Springs, New York. It's a lovely place. How can we help you? Yes, um, I am trying to make, I have made the uh, Argentinian chimichurri sauce. Mm. We love it, and we would like to give it to our friends. And I'm wondering how I can get it through the mail and whether or not this recipe can be canned. First of all, we should describe what it is. It's red and it's really hot, right? It's very different than what most people think about chimichurri. Yes. Chris, do you want to say all the, what kind of ingredients are in it? Chilies, chilies, chilies in oil. <laughs> Paprika. Uh, yeah, it, it's very intense. I think you wouldn't have to can it. I think it would hold well. I, I would just put in ice packs and bottle it up and put ice packs in separate, you know, freezer bag things pack it up and send it that way. I don't think you'd have to can it or preserve it because it's chilies and paprika and oil, right? Sarah, I don't think that's... I don't know. It's it's not like it's just a relish. Yeah, but what worries me is there's no salt or acid in there. Is there salt and acid in it? There's balsamic vinegar. That helps. Is there any garlic in it? Yes. There's definitely garlic in it. Two cloves of garlic. I'm glad there's balsamic. Is there a fair amount of balsamic? It's about a half a cup uh, balsamic vinegar to uh, the two cloves of garlic and about three-quarters of a cup of oil. And then the chilies. I think that would do it. I think you'd be okay. I would send it overnight, have freezer packs in it. I think you're fine. And there's salt. You said there is salt. 
yes, a bit of kosher salt. We should just say again how good this is. I mean, this is one of those. It's delicious. My editor was there a year ago. He came back, and I've, you know, we've had chimichurris before. It didn't look anything like chimichurri. It's, no. It's served with steak. No. And it's just incredibly yeah. intense and delicious. So the only worrisome thing is the garlic. And I think because of the vinegar, it's probably fine. The concern is that when you put a non-acidic ingredient in oil, like garlic in particular, you have anaerobic environment, no air. You end up with a possibility of botulism. But I think we've got enough acid. We're okay. It's so delicious. We want to share it with everybody. That's very sweet. Probably even drizzling on scrambled eggs. It would probably go (laughs) on almost everything. All right. All right. Give that a shot. Thanks for calling. Yes. Thank you so much. All right, Jeremy. Bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help in the kitchen, give us a ring anytime at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Sarah. I'm calling from the Upper Valley in New Hampshire. How can we help you? I was hoping to get my fiancé a really good quality chef knife. And I was wondering if you guys had any suggestions. Oh, boy. Oh, dear. You really. Oh, Sarah's going to go here and get comes, a cup of coffee. Here comes, no, here comes World War III, yeah. actually. Well, <laughs> I'll try to keep this short and polite. I would not buy a chef's knife. Oh. A chef's knife is designed based on a medieval dagger design. And for most people, <laughs> they're too much knife, and the weight balance isn't great. And they're hard to use unless you're really experienced. The other thing you could think about is buying a Chinese cleaver, which is a four-inch deep knife. And I use them all the time, and I find them safe to use. I use them for slicing garlic. I use them for everything. So a Chinese cleaver or a Japanese vegetable knife called a nakiri. I mean, a Japanese knife, some of them are just extraordinary, and they're really much more distinctive than a typical chef's knife. And Sarah's going to now tell you why you should always buy a chef's knife. (laughs) Well, Sarah? I'm going to try to be brief, but there's two main styles for a chef's knife and a larger one, a 10-inch, as opposed to an 8-inch, does all the work for you. But the other thing is the sweet spot, where you do the balance of your work when you're chopping is the part of the knife that's closest to the handle, right? You don't do that much with the tip. And so on a 10-inch knife, you have that much more real estate where you need it, at the sweet spot. It's a bigger knife. There's more area to chop more things. So what they say generally about Japanese knives is they're lighter weight, they're sharper knives, they have a different angle, they're not made for left-handed people. The problem with the European chef's knife is those knives are thick blades. And it's a heavier knife. And you're pushing more metal through the food. However, one could argue if you're doing the rocking motion, when you take the knife up in the back to rock, it just naturally comes down. You should never be forcing the knife. The knife should just do its thing. Whether you have a Japanese knife or a German knife, though, the most important thing is that it be sharp. Pick up the knife and hold it and make sure that you feel comfortable. The, the blade from the tip to the heel is under your control. And I okay. find a lot of European chef's knives, you feel out of control. There's too much blade, there's too much weight. So if you feel comfortable with it, and the whole thing feels like it's part of your arm and your hand, great. And that's my zen-like ending. I actually agree with that assessment because different handles feel different yeah. ways too. And different weights and different balances. 
So That's great advice, you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for calling. Okay, and Bye-bye. congratulations on yeah. your engagement. Oh, thank you so much. It's a wonderful thing. Bye, guys. Bye. Okay. Thanks again. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next is my conversation with fermentation expert Sandor Katz. That and more after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is 
kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with fermentation expert Sandor Katz. His latest book is Sandor Katz's Fermentation Journeys, Recipes, Techniques, and Traditions from Around the World. Sandor, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks so much for having me. You wrote, when all things die, all of that stuff decomposes. So I think fermentation is very closely related to death, and I find it weirdly comforting. So before we get into (laughs) the specifics, death and fermentation... Well, I mean, in general, living tissue does not ferment. Fermentation is a phenomenon of microorganisms consuming nutrients from plant or animal material that's no longer alive. And it's, you know, just an important piece of the recycling of elements into further life. So that's the basis of soil fertility and so much more. So the reason you find it comforting is that fermentation is about transition. It's about recycling. It's, it's in, in fact about renewed life in some way. Yeah. I mean, it's not reincarnation as we think of it as, you know, sort of discrete souls, but fermentation is the reincarnation of matter into further forms of life. It's how life really recycles itself. So in its simplest form, what is fermentation? And in the simplest possible recipe, how do you do it? Well, I would describe fermentation broadly as the transformative action of microorganisms. You know, generally we reserve this word to describe intentional or desirable transformations of microorganisms rather than decomposition. I mean, everybody everywhere eats and drinks products of fermentation every day. Coffee is fermented, bread is fermented, cheese is fermented, cured meats are fermented, condiments involve fermentation, chocolate and vanilla are fermented, alcoholic beverages, uh, olives, pickles, and uh, sauerkraut and kimchi. I mean, just a vast range of the foods and beverages that people eat are produced by fermentation. So how does the preservation part work chemically within a fermentation? Well, I mean, it's really biologically more than chemically, but, you know, the the lactic acid bacteria, which are a broad group of bacteria that are capable of digesting carbohydrates 
And one of the byproducts of that digestion is producing lactic acid. And the vegetables are preserved by the acid. And so, you know, that's true whether we're talking about lactic acid from fermentation or acetic acid, which is the acid that's in vinegar, which actually is produced by a fermentation. But in either case, it's the acidity that's enabling the vegetable itself to be preserved and also protecting it from the possibility of pathogenic bacteria, because very conveniently for us, none of the bacteria that we regard as pathogens can survive in a sufficiently acidic environment. I mean, cheese is a manifestation of practical strategies to preserve milk. Sauerkraut and pickles are practical strategies to preserve vegetables. Uh, You know, many realms of fermentation are driven by their effectiveness at preserving food resources. So one of the things you do in your new book is to dispense with the notion of fermentation requiring equipment or a tremendous amount of skill. So do, do you think that that's still a problem for people? They think fermentation requires a science lab as opposed to some water and some salt and, you know, a couple other things? Well, I think for many of us who were born and raised in the context of what I would describe as the war on bacteria, (laughs) it's easy to project upon the phenomenon of fermentation complexity that it would require a laboratory, that it would require the ability to absolutely control environments. You know, when in fact, fermentation is an ancient cultural practice that people in every part of the world have been working with for thousands of years. And fermentation does not require a degree in microbiology. It's been done by people, um, you know, with the simplest of equipment for literally millennia. So what's the difference between pickling, like a pickling liquid, and and fermentation? Well, I I would say that uh, pickling and fermentation are overlapping concepts. So fermentation is the transformative action of microorganisms. I mean, pickles can be fermented. I mean, I grew up eating what we call in New York sour pickles. They're, you know, cucumbers in a saltwater brine solution with garlic and dill. And during that fermentation, carbohydrates from the cucumbers get transformed into lactic acid, and the lactic acid is what preserves it. Um, There are many ferments that are not pickles. You know, wine is not a pickle. Bread is not a pickle. A pickle is anything preserved in an acidic medium. And the pickles that we find uh, in contemporary supermarkets are primarily vegetables that have been preserved in a hot vinegar solution. This is absolutely a pickle, but there are different kinds of pickles. And basically, vinegar pickling only became widespread at the point when distilled white vinegar was developed. And, you know, in most places, the older traditions of pickling involved fermentation. You know, I spoke to someone in Ukraine, Olya Hercules, And she talked about pickling whole cabbages. And you mentioned that in relation to Croatia. So pickling whole cabbages is also a tradition there, I guess. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, throughout Southeastern Europe, people generally ferment heads of cabbage whole. And then if they want to be serving sauerkraut, then they'll take a whole head of cabbage and shred it. But also they use the whole leaves. So, you know, there's these beautiful stuffed cabbage dishes and the fermentation makes it easier to fold and stuff the cabbage as well as enhancing the flavor of it. I think this was Ukraine. They also pickle entire watermelons of is there something 
that you've heard about too? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, all of Eastern Europe just has such rich and varied fermentation traditions, but lots of vegetables, mushrooms, fruits are frequently pickled. So let's talk about fermenting grains. You said the most basic technique is just to soak them. But could you take us from there into, you know, other techniques and more advanced techniques for dealing with grains? Well, sure. So, um, uh, you know, all grains, just like all vegetables, all fruits, all all food that we eat is populated by elaborate communities of microorganisms. And grains will always have lactic acid bacteria on them and grains will always have yeast on them. But because the grains in their mature form are dried, these organisms are dormant. Uh, you know, they're not killed by the lack of water the way we would be, but they just go into a state of dormancy. So the first step is always introducing water. Um, The grains plump up as they soak in the water and the microorganisms that are present come to life and begin accessing nutrients. So, um, you know, many ferments really just involve adding water. I mean, that's how you start a sourdough. You know, at its base, it's just flour from wheat or rye or other grains activated by water. You talk about fermented salmon heads put in a burlap sack and buried under rocks at the beach for eight to 10 days. Have you actually tried these? Um, I, I did try them, actually. I mean, I, I watched this woman, uh, Leonis Santiago, who I met in Juneau, Alaska, make them. And then I continued on my tour, but I passed through Juneau on my way back and I got to taste them. But unfortunately, Leona wasn't available. So, you know, it was these four uninitiated people who are not indigenous Alaskans trying it. And none of us really knew what to expect. And, you know, the flavor of it wasn't bad, but it also wasn't Great. But then when um, the fellow who organized this told me about um, Leona eating them and how excited she got and smacking her lips at how delicious it was, uh, you know, I really felt like if I had been able to watch her eating it and see her, you know, really relishing the flavor of it, I I probably could have gotten more enthusiastic about it. I've heard, of course, about fermented shark and some other things, but. You talk about, in Greenland, seabirds preserved in a seal skin, which is a heritage food for the Inuit there. Could you just describe exactly how that works? Yeah, sure. So uh, ox are the bird that are generally used. I mean, I should clarify and just say I have not been to Greenland myself and witnessed this. But I mean, basically, the little birds are caught in nets. They're plentiful at certain times of the year. And then there's a a way that they hold the bird tightly that stops its heart. And then they cool off the dead birds to ambient temperatures, pack them in the skin of a seal, filling the skin, sewing it together, using some blubber to seal the seams, and then, you know, basically putting it under a rock to uh, protect it from scavengers. And then it just sits for some months. You know, it's a very practical strategy for taking the abundance of the summertime to use it during the winter when there's not a lot to eat. You obviously are all in in fermentation. Do you have, besides it's intellectually interesting, besides it's just fascinating from a culinary point of view, do you buy into this notion 
that having a diet that includes, well, we all eat fermented foods, but includes a higher percentage or amount of fermented foods is definitely a way to a healthier, longer life or not? Well, I mean, you know, every, everything is context, but I mean, I think fermented foods are are nutritionally important, and I think that they offer a number of important benefits. I mean, the first is simply nutrient bioavailability. Fermentation pre-digests right. foods and makes nutrients more bioavailable. So we are getting more nutrients out of foods that have been uh, uh, fermented. But I think that eating fermented foods that have not been cooked or heat processed after their fermentation that have a biodiversity of bacteria can help to restore biodiversity in the gut. And that can potentially improve digestion, improve immune function. And there's even some new evidence suggesting that it can improve our mental health. So when you go to sleep at night, you just imagine all of these organisms that exist that no one else sees. These things are all around us. I guess my question is philosophically, does that change your view about what life is? Well, sure. I mean, you know, life is very complex. There's a lot going on all the time. And, you know, you started by asking me about something I had written about um, how I'm comforted by the idea that microorganisms, you know, decompose dead things and recycle them into nutrients for, for further life. And that is a big piece of my worldview, this idea that all matter is constantly being recycled and feeding new forms of life. And, you know, to me, that's very exciting. And every time I fill a jar or a crock, I'm tuning into this. I wouldn't say it's cheating death, but I, I would say it, it is comforting. I, I, I really enjoy that point of view. Sandor, it's been a great honor and pleasure having you on Mill Street. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. That was Sandor Katz. His latest book is Sandor Katz's Fermentation Journeys, Recipes, Techniques, and Traditions from Around the World. You know, once in a while, someone asks me about the meaning of life, and my answer is, well, I just have no idea. Yet Sandor Katz believes that life and death are intimately connected through recycling, and he means one form of life simply transforms into another. So in other words, life is like sauerkraut, and fermentation is the doorway to something greater. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Japanese-style chicken and vegetable curry. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. Well, I'm starting with a story, as I often do. I was out in Los Angeles in Highland Park, East L.A., with Sunoko Sakai, who knows a great deal about the cooking of Japan, and she introduced me to Japanese curry, which it is something people eat like every week <laughs> and has almost nothing to do with what, you know, I might consider to be curry at all. So when you think of Japanese cooking, you probably don't think of curry, but it's actually really, really popular and has, as you said, not much to do with Indian curry. Indian curries are usually made with whole spices that are bloomed and ghee. There's usually no thickener, whereas a Japanese curry is a little bit more like a stew with a sauce. It's roux-based, so a flour and butter combination that thickens it. So a little bit different. Um, still some of the same flavor profile in the spices, though. So... 
curry now, I, I guess it's really a convenience food. You can buy it in pouches, right? I mean, it's <laughs> it you is. don't even have to cook it at home. Right? <laughs> you really don't have to do much cooking for it. Um, you can buy it kind of in a package already pre-done. You can also buy what they call curry bricks, which is the spices and the roux in a firm right. little cake. You just add that to your mix and it thickens it and adds all of the flavor in one fell swoop. So in essence, it's a sauce, a spice sauce you can put on just about anything. <laughs> yes. And yeah. Sunoco kind of showed us her version, which her version is a from scratch curry spice blend. And then hers had chicken and some vegetables. Her spice blend has some of the usual suspects that you would find in a curry powder. There's some warm spices like cinnamon, ginger, cumin, coriander, turmeric. But it also had dried shiitake mushrooms, which that kind of adds that little bit of you know, more of the Japanese flavor to it. So in India, a curry is not so much a recipe as a method, a five-step method. Right. Is there a basic method to this version? I mean, it's similar to how you would make a stew. We cook some onions. We add chicken, garlic, ginger. Then we add the flour in to the butter and cook that flour until it gets nice and brown, almost like you would do to make a gumbo. You want to add a little bit of flavor from that flour. Then we add that curry powder, some water, carrots, potatoes, bell peppers, let those cook until they're tender. And then at the very end, again, a little bit more of the Japanese flavor. We add in some soy sauce, some mirin, and a little bit of black pepper. So this curry is served with, it has potato in it. Do you serve it with rice or what? You can serve it over white rice. You can serve it as uh, Sunoko Sakai does over a mixed grain rice. So you could use farro, you could use amaranth, whatever you're really into, or you could serve it over udon noodles if you wanted. It's kind of really up to you how you want to do it. Lynn, thank you. A Japanese-style chicken and vegetable curry. It is, in fact, the most popular recipe in Japan. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for Japanese-style chicken and vegetable curry at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt shows us how to turn leftover mashed potatoes into a delicious new meal. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. 
From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. Jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will answer a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Joe from Houston. Hi, Joe from Houston. How can we help you today? Well, I live in a high-rise, and that presents some unique cooking limitations. I have a hooded exhaust vent, but even at full speed, it doesn't do a great job of removing cooking-related smoke. So one of my favorite things to do before we moved to the high-rise was roasting a chicken. But roasting a chicken at 450 or 475 at the beginning generates so much smoke that I've set off the smoke alarm. I've tried the slow approach of 300 degrees for maybe three hours, which takes forever. So I'm looking for tips. What can I do to make great roast chicken but not generate all the smoke? Do you have windows you can open? No. That's rough. The interesting thing is is that when I use the convection feature as opposed to the non-convection feature, it seems to generate a whole lot more smoke. Yeah, it's forced air, but that is one of the times that you would want to use the convection feature on your oven because it does end up with a crispier chicken. So what kind of pan? Uh, I've used a uh, standard roasting pan with a rack. Mm-hmm. I've used a smaller roasting pan that's maybe a baking sheet. It doesn't seem to make any difference. Right. I put it on a bed of vegetables without a rack. That doesn't seem to change the outcome. Really? The bed of vegetables? Because that was going to be one of my suggestions. But really, hands down, the most important thing is an impeccably clean oven, in my opinion. Otherwise, there's just no way to avoid it. The oven gets cleaned fairly regularly. And the last time I did this, a few weeks ago, we used the thinnest rim like a baking sheet. That was 300 degrees for three hours, like I said. The chicken came out fine. The skin wasn't as crisp. No. It was tasty. It was done. But it isn't the same. No, it isn't. 
The other thing you could do is spatchcock the chicken, and then it would cook in a shorter period of time. You could do it in a high temperature. You probably wouldn't generate quite as much uh, smoke. But I know Chris has something to say about this. So Here's what I do. I, I put it on a rack. I use a half-baking sheet, and I use about 400 degrees maybe 425. So I would try splitting the difference. I mean, you said 300 degrees versus 450, 475. I don't have a smoking problem at 400. I do spatchcock it most of the time because I find that dark and white meat cooks evenly. So I would spatchcock it 400 degrees, probably an hour to an hour and 10 minutes, something like that at that temperature, hour and 10. And it doesn't seem to have a problem. The other thing you could do if you really wanted to was just use a bunch of salt, you know, like coarse salt at the bottom of the pan, or potatoes. Both of those absorb the grease and the drippings. The salt will take care of the problem. But I, I would say 400 degrees, spatchcock it on a rack. I do that almost every Sunday, and I don't really have a problem. I'll give it a try. All right. Thank Let you us know. Very much. Okay, Joe. You bet. Okay, take care. Thank you. Bye bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a kitchen mystery that needs solving, call us 855 426. 9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Sarah from Kentucky. How are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm pretty good. How can we help you? Two weeks ago, I baked a carrot cake and I followed the ingredient list as prescribed, except I added two extra ingredients. I added some ginger and some golden raisins to it. When it came out of the oven and we cut into it, there were these green specks throughout it, a third of the size of a blueberry, and we have no idea where they came from. So I was wondering if you all had any ideas. Yes. It's probably the baking soda. Was there baking soda in the recipe or baking powder? There was. How much was there, roughly? A couple Maybe teaspoons? Two, a teaspoon or two? Teaspoon yeah. Or two. Yeah. What happens is the alkaline environment will turn carrots, for example, can turn green if the baking soda, and baking powder does include baking soda, is not dispersed evenly, you get little clumps of it. So it's mm-hmm. possible that when you mix your dry ingredients, that baking soda was not dispersed properly, and you might have gotten places where there was a little bit too much of it, and the alkaline environment will turn carrots, I think might also turn ginger green. Baking soda is alkaline. That's why that happened. In the recipe, did you whisk the dry ingredients together first, or did they just get put into the mixture? Yeah, so I, I mixed them separately. I wonder if I had to do with the ginger. I've made the recipe before. Yeah, ginger uh, will do no that. Green yeah. prior to that. I would suspect the ginger more than the carrots, but it'll, it'll happen in a carrot cake with carrots too. Sarah, we both made cakes with grated ginger, and it was no problem. Yeah. Either there's too much baking soda in the recipe to start with, which is very possible. That would be my number one choice. Or two, they wasn't dispersed properly. Yeah, I agree. Interesting. Yep, well, it tasted fine either way, just green specks throughout. You were brave. <laughs> were you all, like, a little nervous? Everyone was. Everyone was like, oh, we're going to get sick off of this, but tasted great for the that day and the next. Can I just point out that you're sitting around going, like, we might get sick and you all ate it anyway? Good for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this yeah. might kill us, but, man, <laughs> that, I'm that having two brave. pieces. Yeah. That was brave, yeah. <laughs> I guess my family had good faith in me. <laughs> I guess they did. Well, that's what I would try, and maybe next time. You, you would check a couple other recipes and see if the amount of sodas seems high. Yeah, yes. will do. Okay. Will do. Thanks for calling. Thanks so much. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. Bye. Bye. 
This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Seth Cassano from Fredericksburg, Virginia. I loved your piece on s'more innovations, and I have one for you. I agree that graham crackers are gross and need to be uh, improved with something else. Uh, and I use chocolate biscuit cookies, the British little uh, biscuits that have chocolate impregnated on top. makes it a little less crumbly, a little fancier. You can get the dark chocolate versions, uh, and then you leave it open face. Thanks a lot. Enjoy your s'mores. Bye. By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's food writer J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Kenji, it's been a while. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. So what have you been up to? Well, um, we discovered, you know, we, we live in Seattle now, and we discovered that there's a U-Pick farm uh, about half an hour away from where we live. And so we brought my daughter there a few weeks ago, and uh, she got very excited about pulling potatoes out of the ground. Um, so we came home with like 20 to 30 pounds of potatoes. Um, and so for a long time, we were just kind of swimming in mashed potatoes. Um, and so I started trying to find all the different ways I could to recycle leftover mashed potatoes. Because as you know, you know, mashed potatoes are great when they're freshly made, but you refrigerate right. them overnight and they get, they right. get kind of mealy and unpleasant. So um, yeah, and so I had, I had a few different methods of recycling cold leftover mashed potatoes that I thought you might be interested in. Croquettes, anyone? Yeah, croquettes is a good way. <laughs> um, but th- these are all relatively simple. Um, the first one is to make boxty, you know, Irish potato pancakes. Um, and the way I do those right. is I do a very simple formula. So an equal amount by volume of leftover mashed potato, fresh grated raw potato that you rinse and, and squeeze the moisture out of, and <laughs> flour. Uh, and then for every cup of potato, you add an egg. Um, and <laughs> what I really like to do is add a ton of either sliced uh, leeks or onions or scallions as well as um, sliced kale or cabbage. I particularly like kale because my daughter loves kale. Um, but you add a ton of that to that mixture as well, so almost like equal parts. And then you fry it in pancakes, like a good amount of oil. So like mm. almost like you're making a latke, you know, like a quarter inch of oil, right. and it takes about three to four minutes per side. Um, and we serve that for breakfast with um, with a fried egg on top, and it's, it's delicious. Mm. Um, another one is to make a uh, soup out of it. So we make a Portuguese-style um, caldo verde, so like a green... Greens right. and potatoes. If this is another one of those combining kale and potato, you could use collard greens. But essentially what you do is you just take your leftover mashed potatoes. You first sweat some onions or leeks and garlic in butter um, or olive oil. And then add some leftover mashed potatoes, enough stock just to thin it out into a soup-like consistency. Uh, and then once you have that at a simmer, add in a bunch of handfuls of very finely shredded hearty greens like kale or collard greens. And let that simmer for about 20 minutes. Um, and mm. that is... A delicious soup. It's one, you know, it's the national dish of Portugal, but you can make it with leftover mashed potatoes in it. Um, hmm. It works very well. Um, and then uh, the the final one is just to do it the classic French way, which is to make pommes d'or. My my French pronunciation is horrible, but uh, golden mountain potatoes, where essentially hmm. you just take leftover mashed potatoes and add eggs and cheese to them. So what I do is for every two cups of mashed potatoes, I'll add an egg and about a half cup of grated cheese. You can use cheddar, um, you know, Gruyere would be the classic, but you can use cheddar, any kind of good sort of melting cheese. And then you pile that into a casserole dish, dot it with butter on top, add some more grated cheese on top if you want. 
um, mm. and then bake it at 400 degrees for 30 to 40 minutes. And it kind of, it turns on into almost like a potato souffle. So it gets a very different texture from the mashed potatoes the way they were when you first made them. They get this kind of nice puffy texture with a, with a nice golden top. I love that. Well, you sound like Julia Child now only because she thought in terms of formulas, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, she 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 do like a creme caramel is one egg per cup of whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and that's how when you get to be a, at a certain point cooking, you think about ratios, which means you can improvise at the drop of a hat, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you, you kind of have to think that way when you're working with leftovers because you don't know if you're going right. to have – a cup of leftover mashed potatoes or three cups, you know, so you, you kind of have to be able to improvise like that. So yeah, definitely learning those ratios really helps, you know, and, and, and of course like recipes like this, it's like, even if your ratio is a little bit off, it's like add three quarters of a cup of cup of cheese and it's not going to like break the recipe. Right. You know, if you like it cheesier, go ahead. Um, so it's so a lot of these things are kind of just like improvise as you go along. It's very difficult to any of those recipes. It's very difficult to like fundamentally break them to the point where it's going to taste bad, you know? Yeah. This is not like, making meringues right (laughs) (laughs) where it will always end in disaster (laughs) absolutely (laughs) so kenji thank you so much improvising with leftover mashed potatoes now my repertoire is 10 times bigger thank you (laughs) thank you that was jay kenji lopez alt he's the chief culinary consultant for series eats a food columnist for the new york times and also author of the food lab that's it for this week's show. If you tune in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, learn about our magazine, and latest cookbook, Vegetables. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tureski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubab Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.